humanitarian. Hello, my name is Paula Gilbaisan, and today Lars Peter has kindly lent me the microphones of Trumanitarian to do a special episode on change. You could say change is my thing. I'm interested in studying it, experiencing it, creating it. I feel really passionate about the need for transformation in the humanitarian sector, and understanding the mechanics behind change occupies a really big part of my life. A few months ago, after years of very tough negotiations, a workable solution was found for cash coordination. This is a huge achievement, and the story behind it is really worth telling. The story behind this change is also part of my own personal story, so today I've invited three friends who played a key role in this process to tell us their own stories of change. Isabel Pelly, Juliet Liang, and Sophie Tholstrup are three women with stellar careers in the sector. Today, you'll hear many stories from them. And hopefully you'll get an insight into how a close-knit group of women have worked together throughout decades with grit and persistence. Before we start, I want you to know that we recorded this podcast for many, many different places in the world, so the sound quality might not be great at times, and we apologize for it. Change can be painful for the people who fight for it in the arena. We hope you find inspiration in Thanks, this kind of conversation amongst friends. So Isabel, Sophie, Juliet, welcome to Trumanitarian. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. I have uh, basically created this podcast for my own um, entertainment because I have organized it to be like my, my most amazing and favorite dinner party ever. Um, and uh, I invited you all here because you're all my friends and... Um, I, I have been trying to work with change, work for change, um, and I find it really exhausting. And I'm at a period in my life right now when I'm trying to figure out, should I really be doing this or should I just be going off and opening a restaurant somewhere? Um, and in one way or another, change has been a theme in all of your careers. And I think that's why I invited you here, and, 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 and that's something I admire a lot about what you guys have done. So I want to ask a, a small question. Um, what have you learned about Chin, how it happens in the humanitarian sector, ladies? Give me your, like your, your top two learnings from those experiences, because you've done changes of all sizes. Small ones from like, hey, guys, would you like to try doing some cash? to like some really humongous ones like, hey guys, coordinate globe to how to do cash and everything in between. So what have you learned in that journey? Give me your top two, please. I'm, I'm happy to get us started um, and wish this dinner party to you as in person. That's what I can say. Um, I think that, first of all, change is it's a, it's a long game and the goalposts are always changing. And that's maybe what makes it exciting, but it's uh, sorry, exhausting, but it's also what makes it exciting. So what I would say is we need to not, not lose interest and also not rest on your laurels because I think if I've learned anything is that change is reversible. With what we're seeing with abortion in the US, or women's rights in Afghanistan, or a little bit closer to our sphere of influence, um, maybe progress on cash transfers in the context of the current food crisis and, and macroeconomic volatility, uh, we need to ensure that we that we don't backtrack and actually that we continue to innovate um, on an ongoing basis. And something else that I learned, and actually <laughs> partly through working with you, Paula, is that evidence matters, in fact, a lot less than we'd like in driving change. 
Um, it's important, but it's the, the political nature of decision-making that really you know, drives commitments. Um, and you would challenge me when we work together at CALP and say, well, why are we doing research on X, Y, or Z at this particular moment? You know, what, who are we trying to influence? And let's think about that from the outset. And that's definitely something that um, I've built into my work since. Um, and so, yeah, just based on that, it's really important to understand the, politi the political economy, the incentives, the risks, and also not just who's going to win from change, but crucially, who's going to lose and, and you know, <laughs> massage that relationship accordingly. What do you guys think? Yeah. yeah, that's so interesting because I think at the end of the day, change is about people. Um, and if you forget the people, there is no way to drive change. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think if there was a lesson or what I've learned from it, it is about that. It's about finding, finding, the, finding what makes people tick and how the change matters to them. I think that that was a big lesson. And, and I think Isabel is right. You have to have huge amounts of persistence to stick with change. And there may be small increments, but it's finding that little chink, that little kind of thing to hook onto that you can kind of progress and move forward. Um, and I studied sociology when I was in college and there was this really interesting video someone showed us one time of this guy and he was at a music festival and he was doing this kind of wild and like wacky dance and everybody was kind of laughing at him sitting on the hillside and he was roly-poly and like tumbling up and down. But one by one, people started to get up and join him and suddenly it became a movement and there was like 200, 250 people suddenly like roly-poly, wacky dancing on this hill. And the question was, how did change happen? Like, what was the what was the incentive? Why did it suddenly come from like one guy standing on a hill, like dancing, to suddenly a movement? And the answer was not the guy, you know, kind of dancing on the hill. And maybe that's to Isabel's point about evidence. It's not just the fact that he happens to be doing a great dance and the dance makes sense and the music is good. It was actually the second person. It was the first person who stood up after him and started dancing. And that was the real change maker. It was the person who kind of stood up and said, actually, this makes sense to me. I kind of like what he's doing here. I'm going to dance along. And suddenly maybe that person was, you know, a leader of a big group of friends and that group of friends joined. And I thought it was super interesting in terms of like what we learn about change, because in doing your kind of wacky dance on a hill, you don't want to be just the person dancing on their own, right? You have to make you have to make someone join you. You have to make it make sense for somebody else, for somebody else to get up and to want to kind of participate. And I always find that super interesting in that change, in that small increments, that even if it means doing that same dance 200, 300 times, as long as you get someone dancing behind you, you're starting to kind of see that change. I love it. And, and I've seen like so many pieces on cash, the greatest innovation. And I think what people do not realize is that there were many people dancing. There were a lot of second dancers um, and, and, the, and the dancers brought in their friends. And um, there's a reason why we're having this conversation as friends today, because I became your friend through cash. And I think at the end of the day, it's building those strong relationships that really matter. But it's not only about convincing someone I think it's about really tapping into their passion, right? So that they are willing to risk something of their own to stand up and, and then dance. I think that's why it's so hard to replicate cash because cash was made up by a bunch of people who really appreciated each other from a personal level. You can't really say that, right, in an evaluation. How do you document that in an evaluation? 
No, I absolutely agree with you there. I think that I think one element of Cash's special source is the people that got involved and um, how much they kind of buzzed off each other. And I think one thing that we've we've talked about consistently is, isn't it interesting how many of those original first dancers on the hill were young women? And um, I still don't have any answers as to why that is, but I think it's a very interesting point to note. On just to build on. Juliet's point, I think I was lucky early in my career to have this boss who was incredibly skilled at making change happen in very sticky systems, change happen in very change resistant systems. And and his kind of words of wisdom on this stick with me a lot when I'm banging my head against what feels like a brick wall in change processes. And he said, listen, what you need to understand is that human beings are fundamentally conservative. So in any change that you propose, in particular in our sector, where we have invested so much in our particular business models and the way we work now, most people will be mildly resistant to any change that you put forward. And you're unlikely to convince people a priori. You can sit there and argue academically until you're blue in the face, as Isabel says, present all the evidence you want. Um, But most people are going to be fundamentally pretty grumpy about change you put on the table. And you'll always have a small group of cheerleaders and you'll have a small group of diehard detractors. And you shouldn't worry about either of those because you're not going to change their mind. But the way that you get the grumbly conservatives, i.e. most of us, on board is to get out there and do it. So demonstrate this change and what it looks like off paper. What's it going to do for them? What's it going to do for the people that we serve? What does change done well look like? And once you have one or two examples of this in reality and what we're actually talking about and how it's going to change lives, then you start to see people jump on board. And it's almost like, as Juliet says, making something trendy. We are guilty of groupthink in this sector. And I think as soon as the majority of the people you're going out for drinks with in the evening are saying, oh, are you actually seen this example of cash done really well in Somalia or whatever it is, um, then you're going to start to to change the minds of the grumblers. But yeah, I think that's that's the the sort of mantra that sticks with me when change gets really sticky and difficult and personal is um, just do it, do it well and demonstrate to people what it means in reality and you'll you'll start to shift people. Yeah, yes, but it requires a lot of grit and a lot of courage, right? Because to be the first dancer and the second dancer, I would even say the third dancer, requires a lot of vulnerability. As in like you are totally exposing yourself. So I think it's easier said than done. As in like we could write guidance between all of us on like how to drive change. Yes, first of all, see what people need. Then give them what they need and work really hard. But it's in the work really hard that you're constantly exposing yourself to failure and heartache. Um, So in my experience, the realm of change is only for the resilient. So I wanted to ask you, how do you cope? Because I, I can see you all as women that have worked really, really, really hard, but that have managed to stop from failure many times. And that's something that deserves a badge of honor. So for other like young women who are thinking big and trying to do important things in the sector, how do you cope with being vulnerable and being able to show up again and again and again? What's your trick? Um, I think I think that an element of uh, naivety and and youth and not having this kind of institutional baggage. Um, 
dragging you down definitely does help. So if I take the example of when I was in, in Lebanon in 2013, 2014 and, and um, leading the cash working group there um, and really trying to drive the use of what was this new concept of multi-purpose cash, maybe a term we never should have come up with, but anyway, um, uh, at the beginning of the Syrian crisis, I was, you know, my, my, had relatively limited experience, but I had a certain vision for how uh, sectors and actors could come together in a more coherent way um, and, and driven by, by people's needs. And so I just persevered in terms of getting people, you know, convening people um, uh, creating that space for having the right conversation. And it became a locus for, for action and for a, yeah, for a common, um, common vision of what the role of multipurpose cash should be in this response. And it's now, I mean, as a result of the efforts of multiple different people, um, a, you know, one of the largest programs in the world. And, and I think it has been a, a blueprint for policy change because of the fact that it galvanized a lot of, lot of action, a lot of, um, um, uh, yeah, engagement from, from different organizations. I hope that I would still have that, uh, that, that energy and that resilience now. I think, personally, I think what's, what's actually helped me as well is working for a whole range of different organizations. I currently work for a donor, I've worked for NGOs, I worked for, for a network, and that allows you to understand uh, an issue from a multitude of different perspectives and realize that not everybody has the full picture and that actually you as a knowledge broker, because you have those different perspectives, um, that's a huge asset in and of itself. So I think it's trying to, to realize what you do bring to the table and that you didn't have to be in Somalia in 1993 to really understand you know, the humanitarian business, but you have, you have other assets to bring. So yeah, that's a few thoughts, thanks. Yeah, I think um, that is, <laughs> is a really, really good point. And I think, Paula, you're, you're dead right that it takes a lot of resilience and a lot of hard work. I think two bits within that that I've learned, the first one um, would be, yes, you have to be resilient, but there's more than one way to do it. And I think you have to be realistic about who you are, what you need, what gives you energy, what drains it and what works for you. So when I was starting out, lots of my role models in the sector were these incredibly tough, you know, bullish people who would just power through with change um, power through with decisions and their superpower was they really didn't care what other people thought um, of them. Uh, they knew if they were convinced that they were right, they were going to push through change. They knew that they were going to break some eggs, make some enemies on the way. Um, and that was fine for them. And being realistic about who I am, who I was, who I am. And that's not the case for me. Unfortunately, I, I'm, I'm not as thick skinned. I do care what people think. Um, and so I think over time, I've learned that what keeps me energized, gives me energy and helps me keep going through the tough times when everything feels impossible is playing that kind of complicated game of chess where you're bringing people with very different viewpoints around a table. You're figuring out what people's common interests are. You're figuring out how we can um, achieve our common goal, which is to do better for the people that we serve without, um, it doesn't always work, but <laughs> where possible without crossing any red lines and convincing people that the change works for all of them. So sort of playing that um, that diplomat, that convener role um, and working with people to understand what our common goals are and how we meet them was something that worked for me in a way that just pushing through change and, um, and, and not asking permission would, would not have done. So I think knowing yourself and figuring out where you get your energy from is, is really important. Um, and I think 
you've both hinted at this, but but having regular check-ins with why you're doing this and why it's important um, is critical. And that sounds really basic, but I think it's easy to get lost in the kind of political web of who's doing what and what the micro um, the micro disagreements are on any given day and sort of get lost in the woods. And it's, it's really important regularly to check back in with yourself um, and understand why we're doing this, why it's so important, why it's going to translate into better service, better lives for the people that we serve. And you have to be really convinced of that. That has to be rock solid. Otherwise, the long evenings of dealing with 700 sets of comments on a document can feel can feel pretty fruitless. So that's that's, I think, my two pennies worth. I think it's more than two pennies. I would say it's like two hundred thousand um, dollars, because I think you're touching upon something that is that is key for me, which is um, almost like recovering the value of femininity in in leadership for change. I think this sector is used to a masculine way of doing change, which is like you know the stereotypical image of like the response cowboy who shows up. And it doesn't matter. He can have showers with only like a liter of water and uh, you're there saving the people. But uh, I think there's another way of looking at leadership from feminine values, which doesn't have to mean that you have to be a woman to do that. It just means that you have to be able to value being caring, uh, convening, bringing people together, looking after what people think, looking after what people feel. Um, and, and it's definitely changed that feels differently. So I, I think you guys are, are masters in like feminine value driven change. Um, and that's, there's something we, it's definitely something there to learn about that, not only for women, but for, for men out there. Juliet, what, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. And, it's an interesting one as well, just, you know, when Sophie was saying that thing about figuring out who you are as a human. I remember when I first started in the humanitarian sector, I just, I remember feeling so young and so overwhelmed and people were wearing a lot of pockets. There was a lot of like, you know, bravado. And I remember just feeling like, God, I'm so naive. I'm so unschooled in this. I'm so, you know, like, I don't understand this. And I think, the really interesting thing, and if we look back at Isabel's example of, you know, like Lebanon and, and why was that this catalyst for change or something as well, is is that I, I think the point that Sophie made about just being true to yourself, right, understanding what it is that, that, that kind of makes you tick and having some self-belief. There was an interesting element in Beirut where I felt, especially at a certain point in the response, the response was so busy. Everyone was just getting on with doing response, right? Like it was things were just ticking over. And there was suddenly just this enormous space for a little bit of creativity, a little bit of ingenuity, um, and a little bit of kind of critical thinking as to, but why, you know? And if I'm to use the analogy of the hill, I think Isabel was one of the people I saw dancing and thought, God, that looks cool. I think I want to go and dance beside her. She looks great, you know, that kind of way. But I, I think that was really for me anyway, as a woman, the first time in my career where I kind of realized that maybe if something didn't make sense, it wasn't simply because I didn't understand it, that I wasn't getting it, that I hadn't been in Somalia in 1993, but maybe also things just didn't quite make sense because they didn't make sense at all. And it was just that we were just doing things the way that they had always been done. And I think it, 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 it took me to be that age before I had that confidence to say, well, actually, this doesn't quite make sense for me. I, I don't really understand this. And 
And like Sophie, my MO is not to go around making enemies. It's it's just not who I am. I, I can't do that. I can't be the person with all the pockets who's just kind of like blasting through, showering on one liter of water. I am the person who would prefer to have the conversations, who would prefer to sit down, who'd prefer to do the tiny, you know, kind of exhausting climbing up the wall just to try and kind of get that person dancing behind me. Um, and whether that persistence, whether that is resilience, whether it's the fact that there was a specific amount of space in certain responses that allowed us to kind of do that, whether it's femininity, whether it's courage, I'm not quite sure. But there was something in there. And I think being a young woman in the sector at the time, to be clear, I'm not young anymore, but uh, uh, and I certainly don't feel it. But being a young woman in the sector at that time, it felt like the first time I had confidence in my career. And I don't know why, but that was the first time I, I really kind of, you know, felt that. And then the final reflection I would have is, is that in terms of that resilience, I don't think of me or, you know, I, I think that there are women out there in this sector that are far more courageous than all of us, quite frankly. I think we were in a very specific place. We were in a very privileged place as well, to be frank. Um, you know, we were in a response where, as I said, there was a lot of space and we were able to kind of create some kind of ingenuity, but we were also given that space and that in, it, in and of itself meant that we were in a position that allowed us to do that. But I will say that one of my favorite quotes is about courage and about resilience. And it's that idea that courage does not always roar. It is the quiet voice at the end of the day that says, I'll try again tomorrow. And I would like to think that change embodies that. And I would like to think that a lot of the women and men in this sector who are out there on the front lines, you know, in the deep field, maybe wearing all those pockets. But I, I, that is what I admire most in this sector. It's the quiet voice at the end of the day that says, I'll try again tomorrow. I won't give up. Um, no, and that, that, that last point that you made about us being in a, in a privileged position and being given opportunities is one that can't be underplayed. And we've got, we all recognize that we're just a tiny, tiny, tiny part of this system. Um, and uh, that's an underlying theme, this discussion for sure. But um, something, you know, in terms of perhaps what I would recommend to, to young women in particular seeking to achieve change, um, and, and perhaps this is a, a part of the kind of feminine approach to change, is it's, it's, I find it anyway impossible to disassociate my professional life and my personal life. And, um, but over time, I've learned to develop tools and ways of managing that. So, for example, um, a few years ago, I moved to Haiti and I followed my partner there and I deliberately decided not to apply for a job before I went, even though that was definitely going to be outside of my comfort zone. And I thought I could probably get a job if I wanted before I went. But so I got there and it was awkward because we'd go to social events and people would say, what are you doing? And I'd say, nothing. And do you, do you have kids? Nope. <laughs> okay. Um, but what helped is that just before that, I'd done a, a leadership course, um, which really helped me uh, set some both professional and personal goals um, and just look at life holistically. So what did I want to achieve? Did I want to be a better friend, a better partner, a better, you know, did I want to do more volunteering work? Did I, what did I want to learn, etc.? And then what I realized is the bit that was, you know, we'd consider conventional paid work was actually quite a small part of that overall puzzle. And if I wanted to develop as a person and, um, and see change in myself in order to then be able to, you know, do a better job in this sector, that I needed to look at things holistically. So maybe I was in a privileged position to be able to do that, but I think it's it's important to to take stock from time to time. Change starts with oneself. 
And I think for all of the conversations around mental health in the sector, I don't think we have had a, a very serious <clears throat> look at what happens when people who are incredibly broken are trying to fix a bigger system that is even more broken. I think what would happen if the people who were driving change and trying to be creative were actually healthy, content um, human beings? It doesn't mean that um, this only applies to the people who are based with like a comfy job in Geneva. It applies to everybody. What would happen if everyone in the sector was healthy? Could we be designing and treating people in a different way? I think the answer is yes, but I don't think there's enough focus on figuring out that change starts from staff and how you treat them. Um, I've been thinking quite a lot about Japanese Sophie lately, which might some of you might not. It's, it's just a bit out, but they have this concept called Ikigai, um, which they use to think like how to find bliss. It's basically like a very traditional way of looking at what you do and what's the meaning of life. And like if you are, if you're a Westerner, you would identify more with like Logos B and Victor Frank, which is this fantastic guy who wrote many beautiful books about um, kind of how people serve for meaning. And all of the things that you're saying are making me think about that. So I want to ask you, what's your professional Ikigai? As in, like, what is the what is the thing that motivates and that keeps you keeps you going? What are the things that energize you professionally that that keep you going? I've had the huge privilege in this new role to build a team from scratch, and I got to recruit those people, and and we've we've kind of built ourselves into a team, and we set a work agenda, and so I now have the privilege of being actually the oldest person on our team by quite a long way, um, and by dint of that, the most experienced, and what is really um, making me buzz at the moment and makes me excited to jump out of bed in the morning is that I get to work with a bunch of much younger people who are incredibly smart with great ideas and try to work with them to figure out how to make those ideas live in the world and how to apply some of the little I've learned about how to make change happen to those brilliant ideas, uh, those young people coming to work every day with um, with huge knowledge of technology and how the and how that world works and and to try to work with them to yeah make those ideas live in the world. So I would say it's changed over time. Um, and that for me is 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 what's really making me jump out of bed in the morning. Caveat what's really making me jump out of bed in the morning is at the moment is my crying baby, but I refer to life five weeks ago before I moved to planet planet newborn. That's it. It's a good alarm clock to have, no? A baby. And I think children in, in general change your professional lives dramatically. At least that's my experience. Because you can no longer see work in the same way. I remember I was uh, working for a large NGO whose name I will not mention. And uh, I got deployed to the Philippines. Um, to have a very senior role in the response, and and I had um, a small child, and I remember thinking, I cannot detach myself anymore. Like, how can you count mothers with children just like that and make them stand on a line? And it's not that before I was this like ruthless human being with no heart. It's just that something happens inside of you when you have your own children that make at least me really 
different in the way that I approach my job. So I, I started to work more around the experience of receiving aid, whereas before I was much more focused on the result and the, and the speed. And I don't know if that's like children or that's just the fact that starting like your own community makes you realize that what what is this business where we treat people like as individuals where everyone actually lives in tribes. So I think that makes a lot of sense if you have a little kid like waking you up. Um, Juliet and Isabel, do your children still wake you up <laughs> or not anymore? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I I totally agree. And it's it's a really interesting point, actually. And I will refer to Sophie, who in her wisdom came and met me when I had a five-week-old baby. Um, and she was talking about... Uh, she was talking about a colleague that she used to work with who spoke about the just the the mag magnanimity what is it the largeness of having a baby the all-consuming element of it but also how it changed her perspective and how she looked at other women as well of other mothers and this imagination that this person maybe even just you know somebody stocking the aisles in a supermarket who was also a mother had that that common experience, that same experience, that thing that they had also gone through, that enormity of having had a child, of having suddenly broken open this kind of extraordinary vulnerability, this extraordinary kind of fear as well that comes with with kind of having a child, but also how it changed their interaction, their their the way that they looked at other women, the way that they thought of other women, the way that they thought of mothers and children. Um, and I agree with you as well, Pilot, that it has changed me as a humanitarian. I gave birth during COVID and I didn't travel at all in those first couple of years. And traveling to Ukraine in March was the first time I had traveled really to a, you know, let's say an active conflict or, or, or to any kind of humanitarian duty station, quote unquote, um, since I had a, a child. And it was challenging for me because I became that, you know, kind of slightly overly open person. I found the border crossings difficult. I looked at mothers differently. I looked at children differently. And it made me more furious, uh, more angry, more concerned, more passionate. But it also, I think, is is a is a difficult choice or it's a difficult time as well, because you have to almost actively put yourself in a situation that you know is going to also impact you greatly. But you also know that what you're feeling is a percentage, a tiny proportion of what of what these women must be feeling as well. So it's it's changed my relationship with my work and, and how I interact with with those kind of circumstances. Um, and I really like the way you put it as well, that it makes you focus more on the experience rather than the process, because you I think although you always sympathized with a lot of the you know kind of affected populations we worked with i think this also makes you empathize it, it it is something that you can imagine as well and i think it speaks a lot to this idea that very often in humanitarian aid we see affected populations or recipients of aid as the other right like it's like you know you're over there doing this and having that experience and i'm over here delivering this and i think having a child also breaks down that boundary because you you are now trying to think more about that experience from what would I want to experience. And we say that we do that, but it's a much more visceral way to 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 kind of break down that barrier. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's also making me think that this conversation we are, we're having is also about privilege because this sector is famous for separating life. It's only like typical white that gets a cushy job where you bring your family. 
um, I don't know, like here in Amoco, it's both geographical libertaire uh, because this sector doesn't allow privilege for everyone equally to be able to travel with your family to your post. Um, so I think, I don't know, it's, it's just, um, it's just rife with, with inequality, I think, in the way that people can actually be able to have some balance with their personal life to be able to be healthy, to do their job. Um, yeah. But just, yeah, I mean, to more, more than concur with all of that, but perhaps to spin it in a, in a, in a sort of positive light and think about, you know, the unique experience of being a woman in the sector. I think even prior to having children, the, the ability to engage, or at least my perceived ability to engage with people from across a whole range of different cultures, because, you know, pretty much universally, women are able to be more open with one another, um, I think is a huge privilege. And of course, there are plenty of challenges that we face as women and, and, and you know, inequality persists in every country in the world and is, and is worsening in many. But nonetheless, I found that as a, you know, a unique insight that I think we as women can have. And actually, that's, you know, to, to, uh, back to your question, Paolo, about, you know, what, what brings me ikigai. Thanks, by the way, because there's co-working spaces in Nairobi called ikigai, and I didn't know what that meant. So thank you. Um, but it's, uh, I think, but actually a huge privilege of my, of my current job is, um, even though I work a lot in policy and global stuff and, you know, some bureaucratic elements of the role, um, we, we do, as, as a donor, have a lot of frequent visits to the, to the programs we fund and really aim to build deep relationships um, with the partners and to engage actively with, with people affected by crises. So, of course, you know, that highlights sometimes the huge disconnect between what you're discussing at global level and, and what's happening in reality. But actually, I do find quite a lot of meaning at the moment in trying to bridge that gap. So, you know, why does it matter for this displaced person in Nigeria to be connected to digital financial services? And why does the fragmentation still of, of aid for refugees in Lebanon have a huge impact on people's well-being? And so then you can make the case much more convincingly and from a place of you know, of understanding and, and, and real passion as well. Oh, this is very cool. And um, I'm, it's making me think as well of, of, like, when does change end, right? Because, I don't know, if we go back to the, to the world of cash that we all love, the first thing was, no, once we managed to get everyone to agree that we can do it, we will have succeeded. And then everyone was like, of course you can do it. And they were like, no, actually, now what we want is for everyone to do it. And now everyone's asking themselves, why aren't you doing it? And the next step was like, oh, my God, now we're going to make sure that it works really, really well, that everyone plays well with each other. And now you've done it. So my question is, where does change end? And I can see that there are some strands of change in this sector beyond cash, obviously, that still need a little bit of completing. So... What, what do you think are some of those changes that are still incomplete in the sector? Um, that's the most diplomatic I've ever heard you be. <laughs> so I feel like there's, there's so many things in the sector which, uh, where, where more change is needed. And I think, you know, picking up on, on what all of you have said in the, last, um, in the last five minutes, it's notable that we are um, talking about a very specific change and what's going on beyond these four walls is like a much bigger revolution in the sector that is being driven not by people like us, which is quite right, 
but by local actors, by um, governments, by widening the sector out to think about humanitarian action in its broader context and think about the people who are and have always been on the front line of humanitarian action finally and rightfully getting some of the funding, the attention, the power that, that they have deserved for so long. So I think it's it's worth saying that. And that for, for me, and I think this is this is probably an obvious point, is is the big change that's underway. And I think if we thought getting people to agree that cash was a good thing with all the vested interest that entailed was difficult, then this is going to be multiple factors more difficult because it's it's a much bigger change. Um, I think I think the other one that I mentioned earlier um, and that we're all struggling to wrap our heads around is, you know, again, if we look at cash as this, uh, getting people to to think carefully about cash as this as this long battle that we've all been engaged in for a relatively small change, um, it it makes me very nervous now to look at the speed with which climate change is changing the lives of everyone around the globe, and to think, God, this sector is going to need to transform itself in order to stand a chance of meeting people's needs, people affected by climate change's needs, and it's going to need to do that so quickly. What can we do? What can we do to apply the lessons that we've learned from from relatively limited, relatively tame and friendly changes to these massive revolutions that are going to need to happen in record time? And I don't have great answers for that, but one of the you can all ring me and remind me about this and laugh in six months' time when I've done nothing. Um, but one of the things that I do want to use these few months of of maternity leave for, other than figuring out how to keep a baby alive, is to really do a deep dive into climate, um, what what it's what it's doing to communities around the world, um, what opportunities there are through technology, through um, community-driven response, through preparedness, through all these things to, to tackle it and really have a, a, a deep dive into what this means for our sector and what we can do about it. Because I have to say at the moment, it does feel so enormous and like something that this sector is in all its brittle glory is is not is not very well primed to um to take on but with that said i think one of the things we have learned from cash is if you approach these issues from the headquarters perspective it can feel hopeless you can always be kicked into like another policy meeting or another um approval process and it, it can all feel a bit hopeless but actually if you look at what's happening on the ground our colleagues around the world are incredibly creative, flexible, fast moving. And there are always great examples of people just getting stuff done despite the lack of movement at the global level. And I suspect the same will be true of climate change and climate resilience. I suspect there are great examples around the world being driven by community organizations that we need to learn from and scale up really quickly. Yeah, I'd, I'd really agree with Sophie on that. And I think the first point in terms of what is left to be done, yeah, the Lack of inclusivity in the sector is is the biggest part. And I think what made cash interesting was also that it's never been just about cash, right? It's about being, it's about how we are changing power dynamics, or at least that's certainly what I have always felt about cash in the sector. It's about how we're shifting power dynamics. And it's, it's an existential crisis for the sector because part of it is also saying, are we, is the way that we have our humanitarian system set up really the best way to do it? Is there a way that we can all eventually work ourselves out of jobs or, or certainly kind of hand over power, hand over decision making, hand over responsibility, because that's what we should be doing. Um, but as Sophie said, I think there is such a long way to go. And when we look at how long it took us to get to certain decisions, it it, it, it is concerning, but I have huge hope as well. I, I think that 
making these decisions has forced us to open certain questions that I think are difficult to not respond to. And I think that we all have a responsibility to do so. And, and I have hope for that. I have great, great hope for that. And I think the next frontier as well, and, and I, I couldn't agree more about the climate change and, and, and about how massive this is as an issue. But I also think that there are other pieces as well in the in the interim as well. Like I think data is going to be the new frontier. I think that, you know, where we kind of began that discussion around cash is now moving towards data as well. But the same themes run through those themes of accountability, those themes of power dynamics and control, right? Those themes of how are we shifting those kind of decision making? How are we starting to kind of be more proactive rather than reactive? How are we uh, building into systems rather than coming in and creating our own? And I think that they will be fascinating for all of us to kind of start to reflect on um, in terms of not only what this change has meant, but what we as a system have to start answering in terms of those challenging questions. Yeah, I think all of that takes quite a lot of humility, which I'm not sure our sector has always had, um, both in terms of um, honestly, like the, the part of the pie that we represent, which is increasingly small in the face of hugely exacerbated needs, primarily, well, I mean, climate related, but also conflict related. And so therefore, what do we need to learn from others? You know, for example, it's what I, mean, I admire, you, I admire your, your ambitions for learning, Sophia, over the next few months. Look forward to the debrief. But, you know, uh, climate risk financing, for example, that's something that I, know, I don't know very much about and would love to more. How does it work? How can we influence it? How can we intersect with it, for example? I think all of us working in humanitarian response right now should have a good grasp of that. Similarly, a lot has been done in terms of, you know, linking cash with social protection. Um, and, and I think, again, that's, that's one of the kind of the ways in which cash has continued to challenge the system. But I think so much more needs to be done because actually, um, you know, as demonstrated with COVID, but also with this, this um, uh, Horn of Africa drought response, for example, systems still aren't ready really to respond adequately and in a timely way to, to, to the scale of needs. So, yeah, I think humility and learning is probably um, where we need to focus at the moment. Yes, definitely, because this uh, sector is not built for speed, it's built for comfort. Um, so if I had to if I had to bet on something, it'd be for like all the other like agile people who are working in climate change, um, you know, doing like data driven work um, for them to actually eventually prove collectively that they're much better at meeting people's needs than what this like whole bureaucratic machinery is. I think for me, like all of these efforts around global solidarity and, and self-help, that's that's what keeps me super excited. And I guess this is this goes to like my last uh, two questions um, for this virtual um, party. The first one is, um, what are you into? Like, what are the things that are making you excited right now? And you're like, oh, I am going to have to read more of this while I'm feeding my baby or like chasing my toddler down the stairs. Um, what, what are your things that you're reading? What are you listening to? Um, it doesn't have to be very um, academic and professional. I have been, been watching a lot of like um, Apple TV shows because I really like the storylines. So what, what are you guys into? What are you doing that you're excited about? None of this is very highbrow, but just because you mentioned Apple TV shows, I have also just been watching uh, The Morning Show, which um, <laughs> is brilliant. But the reason I thought I'd bring it up is because um, it, it touches in a 
mm, humorous but also quite powerful way on um, on the whole Me Too movement. And it did make me think, wow, we actually really didn't conclude that conversation in our sector. You know, there was a big hullabaloo around it a few years ago. And now where, what, what, where's, where's the accountability really lying? You know, when we read horrendous reports about abuses of power in DRC, for example, you know, sources like the New Humanitarian are constantly bringing these to our attention, but then what next? So that's, yeah, just some food for thought. And then I actually just read a book. I'm part of a book club here in Nairobi, which helps in terms of motivation. And we just read a book called uh, The Feast of the Goat, which uh, perhaps, perhaps Paolo knows, perhaps you all do, but by a famous Peruvian author, called Vargas Llosa, um, and it's about the dictator uh, Trujillo in the Dominican Republic. And it was really fascinating in terms of the insight it gave you to, into the mind of a dictator and their ability to make so many people around them, you know, com- well, around him complicit in his atrocities. And I just found it very terrifying in terms of parallels with today's Russia, for example, um, and just to realize that these, you know, we talk about conflict-affected environments and so on. I mean, this is this is the sort of mental hold that authorities can have over an entire population. And, you know, that's a big part of our, of our contextual understanding as well. And anyway, I'm looking forward to reading more books by him as well. Um, so I recommend it. Yes, definitely magic realism is something to, like, get into if you work in the humanitarian sector. Um, so, Sophie, what are you into? Yeah, I'm desperate to jump in now because I really hope Juliet with the last word will have a more impressive answer than I have for you because the honest truth is all I'm reading is how to keep this baby alive and like how breastfeeding works and stuff, which is not a very inspiring answer for this podcast. But I will say that apart from my ambitions to really do a deep dive into climate and what that looks like, one of my other ambitions, (laughs) again, come back to me in six months, um, is to... Uh, do some do a bit of a deep dive into tech to catch up with my brilliant colleagues in my new job who are um, far more knowledgeable than I will ever be on this because I think when I took this new role one of the drivers was exactly as uh, Juliet and Isabel have said all of you have said the humanitarian sector is very stubborn about being a bubble and and sort of refusing to engage with those actors who as you say Paolo are outside the sector, moving faster, doing better, offering alternatives. I found that frustrating. Um, I wanted to do some thinking, do some policy, sort of push the envelope a little bit on on what those links with with technology could look like. And I realized, stepping over, that what I was thinking about in terms of digital financial systems and and using uh, mobile technology for communication is like a tiny, tiny tip of the iceberg of what's possible. And there's a whole bunch of very smart people out there with great ideas, with great technology, thinking about, um, you know, we, we recently looked at um, looked at climate and looked at some of the technologies that are available for early warning and, and climate preparedness that could save billions of dollars, thousands of lives. Um, and we're, we're not thinking about them because I think our, our view of technology is quite limited. So I am going to do some reading and try and catch up with my brilliant colleagues who explain new concepts to me every day, like the old lady that I am. Um, and uh, again, you can come back to me in six months and laugh at how little progress I've made on any of those. But that's, that's, that's the idea anyway. I think if you manage how to um, do breastfeeding effectively, like you're already winning. That's the standard, I think. Juliet, what are you into? 
Um, so I will not be leaving us on any kind of a highbrow end line, mostly because Isabel stole my line. I'm also watching the morning show and I found it really, really fascinating and also kind of uncomfortable viewing as well, right? Because yeah, it just, it, I, I found it really interesting, really well done. And as Isabel said, it kind of reignited that kind of conversation, which was kind of, you know, such a such a huge priority for us and which is kind of like, you know, slightly fallen off in terms of the attention. Um, but I found it un kind of really interesting watching, slightly uncomfortable watching at time as well. And I watched it with my husband and it was, I think it was, yeah, it was a really interesting piece in terms of kind of like some of the conversations it generated. So that's it. I was also watching Ted Lasso as well, which just makes me feel better about the world. Um, and so, again, not massively uh, <laughs> kind of important in terms of this conversation. But if anyone hasn't watched it, I recommend it. And then finally, in terms of what I'm reading, I really am not reading a lot at the moment. I kind of go through phases where I, I'll read a lot and then I'll kind of fall off slightly. Um so I started reading uh, recently enough, actually, uh, a gift my mother gave me for Christmas. And it was Samantha Power's book, um, who obviously I'm kind of a huge fangirl of, mostly because she's, you know, redheaded and Irish and, you know, just generally an incredible human being. But it was really interesting because I started reading it and I began reading it actually when I traveled um, uh, in March. Uh, and I stopped reading it actually when they got to, she was talking a lot about her time in the Balkans and I began my career also in the Balkans as well. And I found it difficult reading, not because it kind of brought back difficult memories for me, but more because I realized as a kind of 23 year old, I think going into Kosovo, how naive I was. I came after the war, I didn't see the scars on the country. I kind of just walked in, you know, slightly overwhelmed, more focused on my own kind of, you know, like first career kind of step and how am I going to impress people? Um, and it really struck me, like listening to her accounts of of kind of what it was and 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 kind of how I I and this is being very hard on myself as a twenty three year old, but I wasn't very curious, and I I found that really tough to to reflect on, um, that I should have been more curious when I was there. Um, so I, I I took a lot from that as well in terms of that kind of curiosity and 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 how I was at that time in my career, I was just so focused on trying to be competent that I lost that curiosity. Um, so that was an interesting kind of reflection. And it, it actually made me put down the book at some point just because it, I had to rethink things a little bit. And I, I just picked it back up again recently. And I, I think it's it's a beautifully written account as well. So yeah, that's what I'm reading. Mm, that is interesting. That is so interesting. I, I've been watching a severance uh, from uh, Apple TV. And this is, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a, it's basically a story about people who decide to like sever their memory from like their normal private life and their professional life. So they literally get on a lift, they click a button, and then when they get to the office, they're a completely different person. Um, and it's completely like science thing, but it has also made me think a lot about my my own relationship with my professional life, as in like how uncomfortable is it at times to to have to be the same person when that person that is required of you professionally is not the same person that you are in your personal life um it's really challenging but i don't think i would choose to like separate them i think i will stay with the, with the with the struggles and the pain and probably turn it into joy and kikai at some point um my second question before we finish this party is the equivalent of me giving you a gift. So if, you, if you've come to my home 
I'd be like, oh my God, thank you for coming. And maybe I would give you something like leftover cake or someone would take like the half drunk bottle of something we were drinking. Um, so this is my, my gift to you because you're all very humble women. I say like, you don't necessarily go out and tell people, do you know what I've done? I've single-handedly fixed this problem. Or um, do you know that uh, multi-purpose cat? I invented it. As in like, you don't do that sort of thing. So I want the world to be able to like bask in your greatness. And um, I have asked you to prepare um, so that you can tell us what is your superpower. And this can be anything from like party tricks to like being fantastic. So um, should we do it? I was going to say in alphabetical order, but then I don't know like the alphabet very well either. Should be uh, Isabel. Isabel, do you want to tell us your superpower first? I'm going to go for a very soft power. Um, actually, what I wish I had as a superpower, and I often think of this, is the ability to sleep at any time, because I think that would just make me a better, more patient human in general. I don't have that. But um, I think it's, it's something about bringing people together. And that's very much on a personal level. Um, we're always hosting, always organizing events. Um, Renowned for really burning the candle at both ends, but generally I love it. But on a professional level, I think that what I enjoy doing and what I have done well and hopefully continue to do well is to uh, bring people together, to, to convene different voices, to um, help people find value in collaboration. And I've done that at different levels and continue to do so even when it's outside my comfort zone. Um, and I think it's at the, at the heart of my experience of, of driving change. And so I hope to continue to use that that very soft superpower as I go forwards. Thank you for the question. And you're absolutely right. I think um, this is a group that is not very good about um, self-promotion. I don't know if it's uh, cultural or I don't know what it is, but all right, here, here goes. Um, so I have one really useless superpower. Well, it's actually not useless. I say that it's, it's not useless at all. It was super useful to me at some point in my life. Now it's absolutely useless. I was actually very good at guessing down to the 0.5 kilo how heavy bags were, um, which is, you know, like instead of carrying those like, you know, really janky little scales, like I would pick up any bag. I'd be like, you are looking at a 17.5 bag under the weight limit. Congratulations. Um, I was really, really good at it. Like my body is now broken um, and I'm incredibly weak. So I don't, I don't count that as a superpower, but it was, it was incredibly useful. And it was a really good way to initiate myself into like any field duty station as well, where like people would be going out on or and or, and I'd be like, let me have a quick look at your bag here. I'll, uh, I'll give you, I'll give you the lowdown before you get to the airport. Um, and it also resulted in one fight with Kenya Airways as well, where I claimed that their scales was off. Um, but anyway, that was that was an aside. So that's my really useless superpower. Um, in a really kind of uncomfortable, like, okay, what would I actually say is is a, is a good use of my skill set? And I have to say, I'm borrowing heavily from where, like, Sophie, the ultimate complimenter, the ultimate kind of bigger upper, the person who is the first person to be so validating and reassuring. Um, she pointed to something which I, 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 I hope is true, um, which is that I think I think I have been somewhat good, um, I qualify, uh, about bringing people behind me in the dance. I, I think I can find ways to communicate. And I hope that this is not going to be completely disproven by how inarticulate and, and terrible I am on this podcast. But I think I have found ways to communicate with people, to, to speak to what it is that has made them concerned. I have found ways to reassure them. 
and I enjoy that. I, I like that. Maybe that's my Japanese uh, ikigali. Um, I, I like finding problems. I like finding solutions. I like, I like, I like being maybe the dancer on the hill, maybe the second person, but I like being that person who who kind of brings weight or or brings voice to it. I, I like being passionate about it, and I like finding what it is that people need to hear in order for them to kind of join me in the dance. And and that's something I've really enjoyed in my career. It's something I hope I am I. I I have been good at and I hope I will continue to be good at. And then the final thing I'll say just before I finish is just to say that in that space, in that kind of finding the right words, in that kind of, you know, kind of trying to tap into that passion and, and pulling people on board as well, I would be remiss in saying that, like, you know, we, we've spoken a little bit about how, you know, these women in this sector and, and kind of the role that we have played. But there has been also just that enormous support where on those days where I have felt like, how do I go on? Like, how do I deal with these 40,000 sets of comments on a single document or something? It has also been the reassurance, the the, the kind of the, the intellectual debate, the discussion about breastfeeding, the discussion about like, you know, TV shows and the everything in between with people that I love, people that I respect, people that have inspired me as well. Um, and I think that that has also helped kind of, yeah, generate that and, and reminded me why that skill is important as well. So that's that's my my uh, useless and somewhat useful superpowers. I do. And I think it's clear that none of our superpowers is um, bigging ourselves up. <laughs> but I would absolutely agree, Isabel and Juliet, with with what you've said. You're two of the most impressive conveners, doers and advocates that I've ever seen. Um, serious superpowers. Also, Isabel, I don't want to brag, but I have the sleep superpower. I can sleep anywhere and at any time. And it, it is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I have to confess that we we cheated because we were so intimidated by this question and we kind of prepped a bit and you will never guess what these guys said my superpower is it's devastating and it will stay with me to the end of time they said that my superpower wait for it was social media <laughs> no <laughs> you didn't um, yeah, was, no. absolutely no, no, wait, the art wait. of there's, communication there's a, there's a nugget in, in so there. many different guises <laughs> as demonstrated no, that is a reduction on social media for example <laughs> no no sorry to what, be serious wait, wait, um, what's your handle what say your twitter handle so you get more followers oh no it's just my name <laughs> and also i haven't tweeted for a long time um um yeah, so, but I think that what, when I got over the um, the devastation of that comment, I, I do, I'm sorry, I'm being silly. I do agree that um, what, what the nugget in there was is um, my brain has the ability, I think because it is quite a simple brain, to make complicated ideas quite simple and quite compelling. And I think that's really helped explain things, get other people on board, build connections between um, nerdy humanitarians who are very deep in the weeds on a particular issue and people outside our sector, people who should care about specific issues. Um, and yeah, I think, I think there is, there is, there is something in that. I think having simple, clear communication that gets different people around the table, different people on board as a superpower is pretty cool. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, so yeah, that's it. Pa Paolo, can I come in on yours? Oh, oh my God! Surprise! Well, I think I think yes. yeah, one of yours is the ability to constantly learn and become seemingly an expert in something new all the time. So you know, there was a period where you were passionate about behavioral economics, 
I'm, I'm sure you still are. Now it's about Japanese well-being and applying, you know, applying that to our world. And I think you have an amazing ability to bridge different disciplines and identify um, new trends and elements of learning that can that can challenge us within our you know limited humanitarian mindset. So, thank you on behalf of us all. Thank you. Who knew like being obsessive could be a superpower? <laughs> Thank you. Um, this has been really, really interesting. I, I appreciate all of the time that you've kind of uh, invested in this between babies and toddlers and busy work life and travel and everything else. Um, I feel really lucky um, to have you as part of my sisterhood. And, and I hope that the people listening to this, this podcast um, also feel a little bit part of, of a community. If there are other women out there, who feel a little bit alone at times, uh, reach out. All of these ladies are on Twitter uh, and LinkedIn. Sophie, perhaps also Instagram, the super influencer. Um, and uh, one thing that um, every woman in this podcast does really well is to lift other women up. So if you are listening to this and you're like, oh my God, I feel so lonely, reach out because we're always open. And uh, a final thank you to uh, Lars Peter for lending us the space. And um, see you Bye. next time. Thank you. thank you guys so much. Thank you so much, Paula. Bye. It's about the rights and the freedom to be, for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate, and no one is safe. We're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs> <laughs>